0: Welcome, welcome to the July episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast, your easiest insight into the world, the issues driving it, and your trusted source of information. For those who do not yet know, my name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for your favorite podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this conversation and for your interest in our work. We thank all of our supporters, members, donors, and sponsors for continuing to make our programs possible. Of course, a huge thank you to McLean Middleton, our podcast sponsor, for your transformational and generous support. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at mclean.com. If you'd like to learn more about the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and how you can get more deeply engaged in global leadership, visit wacnh.org. In the meantime, let's get right into this important discussion on the challenges around artificial intelligence and how the world can come together to minimize the worst of the potential outcomes. listeners may already know, New Hampshire played a critical role in the initial formulation around the ideas of artificial intelligence. In the summer of 1956, just two short years after the formation of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, Dartmouth College hosted the founding event for the field of AI, entitled The Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence. The idea behind this research project was to bring together leading thinkers in the field of technology to share ideas around how machines could be designed to emulate human mental capacities. Their theory was that learning and all other forms of intelligence can be so precisely described that machines can emulate it. Things have changed quite dramatically since then, and it would be interesting to know what Professor John McCarthy The professor at dartmouth who coined the phrase artificial intelligence would think of the work being done today from making realistic sounding phone calls to identifying missing children and creating voiceovers for promotional videos there seems to be no limit to what ai can do however while this holds a huge amount of promise for a better world there are also many ways things could turn out poorly for the human race all you have to do is watch any movie where AI is a part of the story and you will see some of the dangers envisioned. This includes the killer robot overlords of the Matrix, to the supercomputer in the movie War Games from the 1980s that only barely avoids launching a nuclear war by realizing there is no way to win one, to the more and more and more and more and more killer robots across any number of films, TV shows, novels, and articles. There's plenty of training materials out there for AI machines to learn from. However, with all these cautionary tales, there is a growing realization that common rules of the road are necessary for AI creation so that we all can avoid everything from machines taking over the world to the unintentional biases being built into systems. To dive deeper into the conversation, I spoke with Ben Porter of Prometheus Endeavors, about this organization's efforts to promote the safe and effective advancement of artificial intelligence worldwide.
1: I don't know that I can tell you the original start date of AI, but as a freshman in college, back in the early 60s, I was introduced to what people then thought of as AI. The class assignments and the, and the work going on in the research lab, was to evaluate checkers and chess boards and to figure out how to play checkers, how to play chess. The machines at the time were limited in size and capability. They used basically brute force techniques to calculate all the possible moves and then select the best one. We referred to it as AI then, but we wouldn't refer to it as AI
0: today. So what exactly is AI in its various forms? At its heart? it is the ability of computers to take in lots of data, recognize patterns, learn, and accomplish tasks that used to take humans a lot longer. For example, India has used artificial intelligence to feed pictures of missing children into a visual AI system, which then compared these pictures to those of 40,000 children in orphanages across the country. In Delhi alone, over 3,000 children were reunited with their families in a matter of days.
1: This machine learning has evolved into neural networks, which mimic, it's a model, and it mimics the way the human brain processes information. If you take that to its extreme end, you get into something called deep learning. And deep learning, I hate to say it this way, but it's more data and lots more instances of data That are fed into the model to develop models that are larger and larger and larger. They require more and more compute power. These models, these neural networks and deep learning, they are at the core of the artificial intelligence that's the current shiny thing that everybody is looking at. And that's ChatGPT, Wall E, and the various other generative artificial intelligence tools that are in existence today. The thing about them is that they are fed by all of these data sets. And if the data is good, just like in the old days of computing, garbage in, garbage out, if the data is good, you can get good models. But any model that you have is incomplete and constantly needs to be expanded and consume more data to get better. So at some point, they start consuming lots and lots and lots of electricity and compute power and data and so forth.
0: A lot of the recent public excitement and concern about AI came about after the release of the AI-enabled program, ChatGPT, a system that can process language and hold near human-like conversations while assisting in creating natural language-written material. Think the drafting of emails, letters, research papers, and sometimes court briefings.
1: A famous story from a few weeks ago is the recently disciplined lawyer used ChatGPT or another one of these generative tools to write a court filing, and it cited eight or 10 court cases that did not exist. (laughs) The citations looked like court filings, uh, looked like prior court cases, But in fact, a detailed search for them yielded nothing. They did not exist. They were a hallucination of the capability. The point being here is these tools are not perfect, uh, but they offer some really, really unique positive benefits.
0: Of course, not everyone is using these tools to cheat systems or avoid learning themselves. There are some pretty useful things that are being done with AI. A friend of mine is using ChatGPT to help graduates create their resumes and gain employment. There are many systems out there that can identify diseases in humans and animals at an astonishingly high rate. Also, in the business analytics
1: program at UNH, we did practicum assignments with students assigned to various businesses in, in New Hampshire and in the Northeast region. And they used the analytic and machine learning techniques to help a variety of companies do some fairly interesting things. There's one company that monitors air quality in hotels, and they are receiving a constant stream of readings from these various hotel rooms. The work that we did for them was a combination of machine learning techniques in a real-time way, analyze the, what I will call, very noisy data from these sensors and to make sense out of them so that, as an example, if someone were smoking in a hotel room, somebody from the front desk could knock on the door and say, you know, that's going to cost you $200 to clean the room, but you don't want to knock on the door where you're making a false accusation. The downside of that is pretty significant. Likewise, you don't want to miss somebody who is smoking. And the next guest shows up and goes in the room and says, somebody's been smoking here. I can't stay here. What they've been able to do is to narrow the false positives and the false negatives so that when there is an event, a smoking event, they have a very high level of confidence that they can react to it. So they're everywhere you look. If you go to your phone to look at the pictures, that you've taken of your family. You can search on the phone and say beach pictures. And it will pick out most of the pictures that you have that were at a beach setting. Or if you were skiing, they'd pick out skiing pictures. If you're interested in boating, they would pick out the boating pictures. If you could put in somebody's name, child's name, your wife's name, they would pick out those. Did you go through and tag those photos? No. Probably not. All of that is happening in the background. We're all getting very accustomed to the fact that these capabilities are there, even though we're not specifically pointing to them and saying, this is AI.
0: AI is here to stay, pure and simple. The questions needing answers are, where does it go from here? What are the potential benefits? What are the risks? And how do we as a global society come together to minimize them? This is not an easy endeavor and something that is made all the more difficult by the great power competition between the United States and China. Countries all over the world have identified AI as the fourth industrial revolution and are working to become the center of the AI innovation world. This means that coherent and consistent regulation across the world will be difficult as certain governments will accept greater risks than others in the pursuit of economic, military, and social control. Should AI be able to look for patterns of behavior to try and identify crimes before they are committed? Check out the movie Minority Report for a view on how that could work. What are the ethics behind swarms of military robots working together to overwhelm area defenses, wreaking mass havoc in cities during war? Should algorithms decide who is hired and who is fired? All of these questions, and millions more, need answering as the race for innovation continues on at a breakneck pace. In response to a National Telecommunications and Information Administration request for comment, Prometheus Endeavors has outlined some guidelines that governments should adopt to protect everyday citizens from potential harms of uncontrolled AI development. It's
1: an issue of accountability. The accountability lies back with the people who have created the AI tool the underlying tools, and the applications of those tools. And I can distinguish between kind of two levels. One is fundamental, and the other is, is much more user-focused. The training data that goes in is critical. As I said earlier with the facial recognition, if you train it all on white males, it's going to do a great job of distinguishing white males, but it's not going to do a great job with any any other category. One of the things we would like to see is that suppliers are transparent in terms of what their sources of training data were that are used. And that training data should not violate any privacy laws. It shouldn't violate copyright or patent. It shouldn't violate subscription paywalls, all of those kinds of things. But it has to be very clear where that data has come from. It goes without saying, it's going to be all of the data on the internet. But if you're training the entire thing on Reddit, you're going to get one set of results. And if you train it on academic websites, you're going to get a very different kind
0: of a result. Open up ChatGPT and ask it what source data it was trained on. It will tell you multiple sources such as books, websites, and other texts created by the trainers. At least it is transparent and will tell you that its source data ends at September 2021 and that OpenAI, the organization that created ChatGPT, has not released the specifics of what sources exactly were used. With millions of people already using this service, not knowing where the data is coming from, but having it provided in an authoritative voice can lead many people to accept this information as intrinsically accurate. Again, getting back to our lawyer friend who didn't fact check the briefing and submitted fake court case citations.
1: That's fine. Forewarned is forearmed. I can use it or not use it, but at least I know what its boundaries are. And knowledge of, as an example, the websites that are used for the training data is a great place to start. Does it have law? Does it have art? Does it have science? Does it have current events? Is it English language only? Does it not have European languages? Does it not have Slavic languages? Does it not have Asian languages? And as soon as you know kind of where the data is coming from, you can get a better sense of what you can expect from the tool itself.
0: Another area that Prometheus endeavors would like to see a strengthening of is in regulation and certification of these tools. First and foremost, the company that creates the tool should tell the end users what the tool is designed to do and outline some of its limitations. So if they know the training data focus squarely on identifying high quality candidates for a chemical engineer, the end user needs to know that it does a great job of identifying candidates For chemical engineering positions but maybe not so good at identifying social workers or if a tool is created to help identify skin cancer it probably isn't great at identifying cataracts it may seem simple i did choose intentionally some easy examples but as tools get more complex it is important that companies are upfront about the abilities and challenges in their systems in addition Prometheus endeavors would like administrative bodies of different professions to outline their own needs and certify tools used in the field.
1: The standards for self-certification are going to vary based upon what sector of business or enterprise they're involved in. As an example, if you have an expert system that is, let's say, looking at photographs of skin lesions and making a dermatological first cut at diagnosis. Those guidelines should not be set up by either the vendor or somebody who doesn't have a good solid dermatological background. In other words, if it's in the field of medicine, it ought to come somehow from the AMA. If it's dealing with law, ABA, the Bar Association. If it's dealing with accounting, AICPA, uh, Institute of CPAs, there are a variety of potential administrative bodies, not necessarily regulatory bodies, that should be setting up the guidelines in particular vertical industries or specialty areas. And that's, again, another focus of this is to push the guidelines down into the fields that have specialty knowledge that can create guidelines that make sense in that field. The guidelines you use in medicine are not going to be the guidelines you use for CPAs.
0: One of the biggest challenges to all of this is the access to data needed to train these systems and what that means for their utility, accuracy, and abilities. Different countries around the world take digital privacy very seriously, while others have a very contrasting view when it comes to what data the government and organizations can capture. Europe has taken a very strict view of privacy laws, which is why you see all the questions on websites as to what data you are willing to let them track you with, while the Chinese government collects massive amounts of data on all of its citizens and people of other countries. Then, there are all the data breaches at various government offices and large organizations which governments and criminals are siphoning off to train programs for good and bad purposes. In this environment, is it even possible to come up with one set of standards or guidelines to follow?
1: Well, interestingly enough, the U.K. and China and the U.S. all see things, not surprisingly, differently. Let's start with, with the U.K., because they have a unified healthcare system one healthcare system for everybody. Once you're in their health system, your electronic medical records are all shared. You know, you can go from one end of England or Scotland to the other and and the local doctor can pull up your files. As we all know in the US, not so much. Our data files are fragmented and dispersed. And in a sense, there's a note of privacy just because we're so screwed up in the way we keep track of things security by obscurity is the way they refer to it. China's got a different view of privacy and so forth, a lot of it based on kind of Confucian philosophy and and a lot of their history. So some of it's cultural, uh, some of it is legalistic in terms of their particular governmental models, but they're all different. And it's not easy to come up with guidelines that are going to be useful on just the privacy front that will apply well in all three cases. The Europeans have much more stringent privacy regulations than does the U.S. The U.S., I think there's still a sense of us wanting to protect our privacy, but we do not have enabling legislation to actually be able to do that. So the fact is there are different guidelines everywhere of what is happening now to most of us as we go onto a website, and we're being asked about, can you track me with cookies and things? A lot of that has been driven by European regulation, not by U.S. regulation. And so in a sense, the technology companies are defaulting to the most stringent privacy requirements, mostly in the Western world, so Europe and U.S., as opposed to the Chinese. The Chinese would love to have us do it according to whatever their model is, but that's a political issue that's beyond me at this point.
0: Beyond coming together around data privacy and security, there are quite a few areas of regulation and guidelines that the world should come together around to prevent the worst of outcomes and protect people. There are big questions about the use of facial recognition and tracking of people's movements. What about using healthcare data to create targeted weapons? How about using AI tools and quantum computing to exponentially increase the power and efficiency of cyber weapons? Should research into fully autonomous programs be allowed unchecked? These are all vital questions to answer, and the world would benefit from harmonization to avoid a race to the bottom in terms of regulations.
1: I think harmonization is a good way to think about it. First of all, we're hoping that what we're proposing are guidelines rather than specific regulations and establishing a set of principles as kind of an umbrella to the regulators. Regulation is going to evolve much more slowly than the technology. The technology is going to race ahead at breakneck speed and will bypass any attempt at regulation. But harms will be identified, and we're hoping that these principles and frameworks will guide the creation of regulations that do not impede the progress. There will be some, no doubt about it, but I think we are leaning more towards innovation and evolution than we are restriction. Some of the recommendations to shut down all AI development Fool's errand. It's not going to happen because Google's trying to outpace Microsoft is uh, open OpenAI, so forth and so on, and the US against China. It's going to be pretty <laughs> strong competition and, and lots of money thrown at it. And so yeah, it's we're gonna have we're gonna continue to have progress. The key is to see if we can find a way of reducing harm in the process. There are already ai built into some semi-autonomous weapons should we stop that i don't know beyond that some of the technology is being used in the pharmaceutical industry to identify proteins that can be both helpful and harmful how do you regulate that and that's something that's got to be done jointly with ethics people and people in the pharmaceutical industry and so forth. There's just too many different applications, and we just have to be very cautious that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, that's essentially the situation that we're in. These systems can hallucinate. They can potentially hook up with Twitter and start feeding Twitter. They could violate privacy and copyrights. How do you protect artists who are constantly creating original works of art and all of a sudden it can be duplicated in a heartbeat and undersold and so forth and so on? There's just too many different places where it can be applied. If you start putting absolute control, it's going to slow things down and frankly, people will find ways around
0: it. One of the big areas of concern in terms of AI comes from the idea of deep fakes. These are videos that are created by AI tools to make it appear as if someone said or did something they have not. Just last month, a video that was broadcast on some Russian media stations appeared to be of President Putin declaring martial law in the border areas of Russia and Ukraine. The only problem being, there was no invasion of Ukrainian forces and Putin did not film this address. It was a deep fake that convinced a lot of people and was cheered around the world. However. What happens when they're doing it to Biden, when they're
1: doing it to Richie Sunak, when they're doing it to Macron? This is the real danger, is that there can be complete misrepresentation and dissemination of conspiracy theories, false facts, all of those kinds of things. And all of that is now entirely possible, given where we are with the technology.
0: Of course, it seems AI is the answer here. There are a number of tools out there that can help identify these fake videos. One of the coolest sounding ones I came across was Intel's Fake Catcher, which claims to be able to identify deep fakes with 96% accuracy. Among the many things this program analyzes is the blood flow patterns it finds in the pixels of the video. Amazing that it can identify these patterns and it is certainly something that the naked eye cannot do. This area seems ripe for regulation, either by government or governing bodies, which could require all deepfake generators to include a watermark that identifies the produced material as AI generated. With so many opportunities for positive and negative uses of these technologies, as with all technology, it is important that the world come together to take the challenges on and create solutions. In light of all of this, what does the future look like? Will the benefits outweigh the costs? Can we avoid becoming slaves to the robots? I
1: think it is going to be a net benefit. It is going to cause some significant disruption in the workforce. Jobs are going to disappear, but humans are a creative folk, and people will learn how to use these tools in productive ways, and and some in less than productive ways. I am in, generally optimistic that, Some of my associates are very pessimistic about artificial general intelligence, which is the bots taking over the world. And I am less concerned about that because, A, it's going to be very expensive to create those bots and expensive to run them. I'm not sure people are going to be happy with the outcome. I think the downsides of AGI are potentially significant, and I think those are going to get sidelined along the way. It's a lot easier to keep track of somebody is developing that because you can track how much electricity they're using. I am very positive. There's going to be a lot of very small AI-type applications that are going to proliferate. They're going to change the way people do things. And people are going to use them because they give them benefits. And I think that's the positive.
0: I will leave the conversation here with a final thought about the different things you may want to be aware of as AI grows in its uses and abilities. One important thing for everyone to be aware of, for themselves, their children, or their grandchildren, is that AI is here to stay. So we need to be prepared to use it, understand it, and identify it. Education is key here. For those still in the education system, learn about the proper use of AI, and don't take the easy way out by having it write your papers for you. Figure out the ways that AI is changing the workforce needs of the future and prepare for that. Also, we need to understand the limitations and pitfalls of these tools. Think unintentional biases. In addition, be aware of the ways in which AI impacts your life. From spam filters deciding which emails make it through to you, to shopping algorithms recommending products, and networks of bots spreading disinformation online. The better understanding of how AI is being used, the better we will become at spotting the challenges and opportunities presented. Finally, when you use a generative AI product, always double check its work. Human oversight is the only way to ensure these systems are working properly and not just making things up. This has been The Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. A big thank you to Ben Porter for his insights into this complex issue. As always, Tim Horgan is your host, editor, audio technician, producer, director, researcher, and the human behind it all. This disclaimer has not felt needed before, but for your information, AI has not been used in the creation of this podcast, but the algorithms that brought you here may have utilized it. Our theme music is Admin by AA Alto, and the interlude music is Artificial Intelligence by Ryan Anderson. Thanks for listening.